I know you have to use a bit of your imagination, whether you believe it or not. Uh, more than 16 years ago, I was a bodybuilder of sorts. I lifted weights uh, four times a week. I ran three miles a day. I was active in all types of sports. I could easily bench press 225 pounds. I was at the prime of my life uh, in very, very good shape. My wife even has a picture of me uh, in my prime of healthiness. And she would always tell me that this is her favorite picture of me uh, and wishes dearly that I would look like that again. She has blown it up, put it in a picture frame, and it is in our house somewhere. It is a reminder of what I should aspire to look like if ever I get motivated enough to go back into an exercise regimen. The truth of the matter is, I'm simply not motivated. Because I understand the price that I have to pay. And quite frankly, I don't want to pay that price. I don't want to pay that price right now, especially with the Christmas feast coming right around the corner. Similarly, to achieve the great goals of your life, you have to pay a price. One of the goals that a majority of us has is the goal of becoming great, to become someone of significance, to be someone of worth, of value, to be thought of highly in this life. But with that greatness comes a price, and it is not a price that many of us want to pay for. This morning, as we study the fifth of the eight night visions of Zechariah, you remember this book, God calls us, invites us to return to Him. There is an invitation to return to an intimate fellowship with God. When He invites us to return to Him, He says that He will enable us to be great. But in this fifth of the eight night visions, where there is an invitation to be great, there is a price associated with that greatness. What is that price? What is the motivation for us to pay that price? The question turns to, will we pay that price? We want to unpack this idea this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Zechariah chapter 4. If you are new to the Bible, the book of Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament. If you turn to the book of Matthew and Mark, then you've gotten too far. Go back a few pages. Zechariah chapter 4, as we exposit verses 1 to 14. Continuing our series in the book of Zechariah, a series entitled, Return to Me. As we begin chapter 4, we are given... A vision, a vision that Zechariah has, verses 1 to 5, reads this. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me, as a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. We have here a vision of a lampstand. 
like a Jewish menorah, there was a, a bowl on top of the lampstand. It was a basin, a repository for the oil that would be able to light the lamps. All the lamps were connected through a series of pipes. And the Bible tells us that there are seven lights to each lampstand. Seven times seven, 49. There are 49 lights to this unique lampstand. The Bible tells us that they are given oil through the piping, but through the source of that great bowl on top of the lampstand. In this vision, the lampstand represents the Jewish community. It represents the people of Israel. It was a stark reminder to them that they were to be the light to the world, a light of God to the rest of the world about the living God, Yahweh. This was a special lampstand, and that because instead of the priest remembering to fill the lamp with oil, the lampstand was automatically filled with an endless supply of oil from the two olive trees, the Bible says, that has sprung up to the left and to the right of this large bowl. Now, what does this all mean is the question Zechariah asks in verse 4. What does this signify? Now, before specifically telling the prophet Zechariah what these two olive trees represent, he will give Zechariah two prophecies about Zerubbabel. I know we can get very confused with two Z names. Zechariah is the prophet. Zerubbabel is the governor of Judah at that time. The two prophecies about Zerubbabel will help Zechariah and us understand what God is trying to tell the people of Israel through this lampstand. Now, if you remember from Old Testament history, Zerubbabel was the leader of the first group of exiles that had returned after 70 years of captivity allowed by the Persian Empire. And there, Zerubbabel was to encourage the people to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians. He was called to encourage the people to rebuild their lives in a land that was devastated. However, when they came back and began this rebuilding process and the rebuilding of their lives, they encountered many difficulties. Lots of discouragements, troubles. Many of these people had decided to give up they realized that the project that they were working on would never compare to the beauty of Solomon's temple. And so some of them thought to themselves, what are we doing? This is an insignificant project. We can't do it. Look at all this opposition. Where's the motivation? Our human efforts have led to this failure, catastrophe. You see, the cries of the people, succinctly put, was a cry for how we can become great again. How can we become great as a people? How can we find significance? How can we find purpose? I wonder if it is the same cry of our heart this morning. Perhaps you're in a similar situation. You find that the obstacles in your life are too big to overcome. You find that you have very few motivation to really proceed in this life you don't have the strength to finish a task or the task seems impossible you've tried your hardest but you failed 
you're in the midlife crisis of your life. And you look back and you wonder, what have I accomplished? You're young in this life and you wonder, what can I do? And so the cry of your heart is, how can I also become great? How can I be a person of significance? How can I matter? What God will tell the people of Israel is the same thing He tells us. And He tells us how we can become great when we return to Him. But there is a price that we must pay. What is that price? Let's look at the first one in verse 6. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. So He answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We're familiar with that verse. Not by might, but not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. God says very clearly to Zerubbabel, it will not be your strength. It will not be by your power as governor that this temple project will be rebuilt. The rebuilding of this temple will be achieved by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And that was one of the main points of the vision of the olive tree. There was no need of humans to supply oil continually because no human maintenance was necessary. God would supply the oil through the trees He has positioned to the right and to the left of this receptacle bowl. What He is saying is that the abilities the resources to accomplish great things and to become great belong to God. We need to recognize that. We need to recognize the power of God in contrast to our own inability. To recognize the power of God over our own inadequacies and inability. In 1866, Alfred Noble of whom the Nobel Prizes are named after, invented an explosive made out of nitroglycerin absorbed in a porous material. It was by far the most powerful explosive that had so far at that time been invented. When Noble and his friends saw what his invention could do, they had to decide on a name. They sought for the strongest possible word for power in any language. And the word they finally chose was the Greek word dunamis, from which the word dynamite is derived. Alfred Nobel called his material dynamite after the strongest of Greek word for power, dunamis. This Greek word, when it is used in the New Testament over and over again, is always associated with the power of of Christ, the dunamis of Christ, the power of Christ, even when it is in reference to the gospel message, the power of the gospel, the power of the Christian life in Christ, all dunamis, all power has been given to Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us the rubble would not need an army of workers to complete the project. He wouldn't need military might. But the work will be accomplished through the supernatural work of the Spirit of God. 
recognizing God's power over our inability. You remember the story of Gideon in the Old Testament. It's one of my favorites. God raised up the judge Gideon to overcome the oppressors called the Midianites. The Midianites had 135,000 strong military men. And so God called Gideon to assemble the troops of Israel. And Gideon called for the men to come and fight. And he was able to muster up an army of 32,000 men of Israel against 135,000 men of the Midianites. The odds don't seem great, but at least something could happen. But then God says, as he looks at these 32,000 men, there are too many. Do you remember that phrase? There are too many, lest Israel claim glory for God. And you can just imagine, Gideon, God, we are already outnumbered. Are you sure? God says, lest Israel claim glory for itself. And the Bible tells us 20,000 left. And God looked at those 12,000 against 135,000, and God told Gideon, there are still too many, lest Israel claim glory for itself. And he whittles them down and whittles them down until, as you know, the Bible tells us, Gideon had 300 men. And God looked at those 300 men and he said, okay, that's about right. You can imagine Gideon, what? 300 against 135,000 strong men of the Midianites. God says, 300 is enough. So that when you claim victory, you will ascribe that victory to me. The lesson that God was teaching Gideon is the same lesson he taught the people in Zerubbabel's time and the lesson he's teaching us now. Recognize God's dunamis, God's power over our inability. You see, the number one thing we've got to understand, the first price of greatness we must pay is the price of humility. You see, when we recognize God's power over our inability, that is the price of humility. It's an attitude. But it's a price we're often unwilling to pay. Because we look at our lives and we think we can do everything and anything. But we can't even control what the next hours will look like. We don't even know what the future holds. We're really not that powerful. When you can come to that point in your life where you say, God, I'm nothing apart from you. I can't do anything. Then you are beginning to understand the price that God calls you to pay to become great. We just sang that song, Indescribable. What a wonderful song by Chris Tomlin. Who directs the lightning to strike? We say, but, but that's so random. God says, I direct where the lightning bolts hit. Recognizing God's power over our own inability. I remember the story uh, of the donkey that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. He wakes up from his sleep the next morning, still savoring the afterglow, the best day of his life, the day when he carried Jesus into Jerusalem. 
donkey had never felt so happy and proud. And so he wandered into the village and he found some people buying a cart. And he thought to himself, I'll reveal myself to them. They must remember that I was the donkey that brought Jesus in. They'll be so surprised. But as he walked by these people who were buying a cart, they continued haggling and paid no attention to it. Throw down your garments, he said angrily. Don't you know who I am? But the people barely registered that he was there. And someone even slapped him on the backside, ordering him to get out of the way, move along. Miserable pagans, muttered the donkey to himself. The people at the market will remember me. But to his surprise, when he got there, the same thing happened. They paid no attention to him. He strutted up and down the street, but no one paid attention. Where are the palm branches? He exclaimed, yesterday you threw palm branches in front of me. Upset and angry, the little donkey galloped back home to his mother, told her what had happened. How could they? He muttered to her. Mother donkey said to her son, chiding him gently, you foolish child, don't you understand that without him, you're just an ordinary donkey. I think the same could be said of us, could be said of me. You foolish people, don't you understand that without Jesus, you're just ordinary? Because that's who we are. And yet we walk around wanting people to recognize us. And when they don't, in our minds, we say, don't they know who I am? The truth of the matter is, without the mercy and the grace of God in your life, you're nothing. You're ordinary. It's a hard lesson. You see, the price of humility calls for a change in our attitude. The price of greatness requires with it the price of humility, recognizing God's power over your inability. It's hard. The second price of greatness, verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. The Bible tells us by the enabling work of the Holy Spirit, the temple would be completed. Every obstacle, he tells Zerubbabel, to the rebuilding process will be removed. In the scriptures, mountains are often pictures, pictured as large obstacles, things that prevent us from accomplishing something. The Bible tells us that the mountainous job of rebuilding the temple by these exiles would be removed. It would be as flat as a plain. Can you imagine the encouragement that must have been to those people who were rebuilding the temple? Who had gone through trials and discouragement and obstacles 
And God says, I will remove the mountain. It shall be flat. In the same way, God promises us the same thing. With His strength, He will remove the obstacles of our life. There are many mountains of obstacles in our life today. Some of you are experiencing it this morning. You wonder, how can I get around it? It's too big. How can I go over it? By the time I dig a tunnel through it, I'm long dead. And God says, don't you worry. Step aside. Let me clear the mountain. You see, with his help, he removes the obstacles of our life. But we must be willing to step away and let God do the work. And therein we find our second price of greatness. It is called the price of surrender. Are you willing to yield? Are you willing to surrender? Are you willing to step aside and let God do the work? The first price is a price of a changing attitude. The second price is the price of involuntary action. It's still action. But there comes a time in our life when the obstacle is so great, we just throw our hands up and we give up. And we say, God, it's all yours. It should be the first action, but for most of us, we wait till we've exhausted everything in our life that we can do with our own power. And then we say, God, take it away. But God wants us in that position. God wants us to step aside Throw up our hands. He wants to show us that he can make the mountains flat. As Maud Royden tells us, when you have nothing left but God, then you become aware that God is enough. Isn't that great? Capsulates this verse. When you have nothing left but God, then you become aware that God is enough. When you finally step aside, when you finally take your hands away, then you realize that God is able to do what he says he can do. Many of us are wrestling in our life of who has control over it. God says, if you want to do great things, throw up your hands. That's the price of surrender. We've heard about yielding. We've heard about surrender. But oftentimes we pick and choose. When the Bible talks about surrender, yielding, it's one that is complete. I remember the story told by Dr. Goforth of China, missionary to China. He once met a very wealthy lady who came to him and stood beside the missionary. He told Dr. Goforth, Pastor, I'm not very happy. He said to her, Ma'am, have you surrendered all? She told him, as far as I know, I've surrendered everything. Are you sure, the pastor said, is your all on the altar? Yes, she said, my all is on the altar, I believe. This woman's little girl was standing next to her. And so Goforth said to her, ma'am, are you willing for God to take your little girl here and send her far away to China as a missionary? She exclaimed to the pastor, 
You mean God will take my daughter and make her a missionary to China? I should say not. I want her with me. The pastor said to her, and yet, ma'am, you tell me you have yielded all, but you haven't even given your own child to God. How can you expect God's blessing and peace and joy? You stand, as it were, there between God and his will for your daughter, and you say to him, no, no, God, this is as far as you can come and no further. You can have my home, you can have my money, you can have me, but, but don't touch my daughter. You, you call that surrender? The woman walked away. You see, when we talk about surrender, the price of it, it's complete. It's everything. Surrender, the picture has the idea of literally a police saying freeze, and we say we surrender, arms up. God says, don't put your hand on there. But the problem is we like to be involved in the control of our life. God, let me have a part. God says, well, if you can have a part in this, in controlling your life, then I'm out of this. Until you yield your life completely, unless you surrender your life, then you cannot be great because unless you step out of the way, I can't remove that mountain. It's a hard lesson. God says, don't touch it. I'll handle it. But we like to touch. It's a hard lesson for people like me who like to be in charge. It's a difficult lesson for each of us because we say, my life is at stake. It's my life. It's hard for people who like to be in control. God says, if you want to be great, then you must pay the price of surrender, stepping aside and letting me do the work. It's no secret that the church and I have greatly desired to buy that empty lot next to our building. It's the only empty lot that uh, surrounds this church. And if the Lord gives it to us, how wonderful we can use that land to expand the church ministries. But it's been many years and nothing seems to have moved. I've become very frustrated at times. But this spoke to me this week, these verses. It spoke to one who has tried all of his best efforts to try to secure that land. But God spoke to me and said, Steve, step away. Step away. In my time, in my ability, I will make that mountain flat. You've got to trust me on that. When you take your hands off the controls, then I will begin to work. And you would think that as a pastor, it'd be easy to say, well, God, here it is. It's all yours. But it's not. Because the reality is we all want to be involved. We all want to say, well, under my leadership, that was done. But he tells Zerubbabel as he tells us, Pay the price of surrender. Yield. Maybe it's not my will for you to have that land. Maybe not for another 10 years, 20 years. 
But my will will be accomplished once you step aside. It's hard. It really is. Then in verse 7, there's a promise. The promise that Zerubbabel would bring forth the capstone, the topstone, the final stone of the project. And what will be shouted when that final stone is put there? Grace. Grace to it. Not shouting the name of our church or of our school. The joyful cry of the people is that when they see that last stone put in place, they will cry out grace because it is by grace that that thing got rebuilt. Not through the work of Zerubbabel, not through the work of their hands, but by the work of God who took the mountain and made it flat, they will say grace, grace. By the undeserved favor of God, we are finished with this work. At the end of your life, when the capstone of your life has been placed, can you look back in your old age and look at your accomplishments and shout out grace, grace. Only by the grace of God am I who I am today. Why else should we yield and let God do the work? Look at verse 8 and 9. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. God says to Zerubbabel, Persevere in the work, because I will see to it to its completion. As I have started, I will end it. You know, one of the biggest fears of why we don't turn over our lives to God is that we wonder if God will finish the work he started. Who loves our life more than us? So I'm going to make sure that my life is in a good trajectory. But I don't want you ever to forget that when God starts a work in your life, the Bible says he will complete it. He is not a God who quits. He is not a God who does a sloppy job. He enables with the building of the foundation to put on the capstone, the final stone. Do you remember that verse in Philippians 1.6, which many of you have memorized? Philippians 1.6. He who has begun a good work in you will what? Will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. It's a hard lesson. But when we pay the price of surrender and we say, God, it's in your hands, we step back and we see God complete the task. Are you desiring to be great? If you do so, then you must pay the price of surrender. Verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. There were many who doubted, they jeered, they laughed that this temple would never be rebuilt. The Bible says in verse 10, For who has despised the day of small things? 
they would be ashamed that they saw this project as insignificant. But the Lord Himself was glad. They rejoice to see that Zerubbabel is holding a plumb line. A plumb line, if you don't know, is an ancient architect's tool. Zerubbabel is continuing the work. The omniscient eyes of God are looking. They're looking through the world and they see Zerubbabel. And there in that little corner of the world, in a run-down Jerusalem, Zerubbabel has that plumb line. People are laughing at him. People are jeering him. He's got that plumb line. And the picture is a man who is faithfully doing the work in spite of the people around him who has despised the day of small things. You see, God was pleased in the small things. Why? Because in the small things, God's greatness is displayed. The small things display God's greatness. For the unbelieving world to see, God's power is made evident in the small things. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Jesus said to him, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength, my power is made perfect in your weakness, in your small things. Here is the third price you must pay for greatness. And that is the price of conformity. The price of conformity. In other words, the price of obedience. If the small things display God's greatness, then you are simply called to a life of conformity, a life of obedience. You see, the price of humility is an attitude. The price of surrender is involuntary action. But the price of conformity is voluntary action. You have to want to do this. When we speak of conformity, the Bible tells us there is a positive outlook and a negative outlook. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the negative outlook, do not be conformed to this world. Romans 8, 29, the positive aspect. But we are to be conformed to the image of His Son. We are to be like Christ. Therefore, to be great, we are to begin by taking the small steps of faithfully moving away from the world to becoming obedient to Christ, to be conformed to His image, to be more like Him. The world may jeer at the small things. They may laugh at the things that you do. But the small things display God's greatness. And if you want the power of Christ in your life, the power that leads you to greatness, then you must be willing to pay the price of obedience, the price of conformity. It takes a small step. It takes the first step. You got to start somewhere. You see why this is so hard for so many people? Is they want to skip all the steps. The worker wants to become CEO overnight. 
The new Christian wants to become a spiritual giant overnight. The new church member wants to be a church leader overnight. But what we have forgotten in our day and age today is that there is a process. Do not look about the small things of faithfulness. Are you willing to do anything and everything? Because the Bible tells us it is when we are weak that we are strong. And it is in the small things that display God's greatness. We want a spectacular rise overnight. God says it doesn't work that way. The glory belongs to Him. And He tells us the greatness of your life comes when you begin to pay the price of obedience and conformity. Small things matter. The little things that you do in your life matter. The small steps of obedience matter. It's a true story. During World War II, while the Allied bombers were bombing Germany, they were met by German fighters. One bombing crew stared in horror as five bullets, one after each other, pierced the body of the bomber and penetrated the fuselage where the gas tanks were located. The crew of the bomber braced themselves for the explosion or for the fire to break out, but nothing happened to their surprise. Not one spark or a puff of smoke appeared. Soon, the bomber plane managed to land safely in an English airfield. The crew climbed down from the aircraft and carefully removed the bullet shell from the fuselage. As they inspected it, they saw five nearly perfect bullets. They hadn't exploded. They had merely crumpled. The crew took the bullets back to their barracks for further inspection. When the soldiers opened four of the bullets, they found something amazing. There was no gunpowder inside. They were completely empty. When they opened the fifth bullet, they found something extraordinary. Rolled into a tiny wad inside the bullet was a note. When they opened it, it read this. We are Polish prisoners of war, forced to make bullets in factory. When guards do not look, we do not fill the bullet with powder. It's not much, but it's best we can do. Please tell family we are alive. The note was signed by four Polish prisoners of war in the Nazi concentration camp. Small acts matter. How many times do you wonder whether your small efforts, your small prayers, your attempts to serve God in a humble way make any difference at all? Do not be misled in this world Every act of conformity, every act of obedience to God is as significant as one of those bullets. The small things done faithfully, the Bible says, in the eyes of God, are great. So begin the small steps towards becoming more like Christ. Take one minute a day to pray, and then two minutes, and then five minutes, and then ten minutes, thirty minutes, and before long, you'll become a prayer warrior. 
take the time to spend five minutes a day and then 10 minutes a day and then 15 minutes a day in the study of God's word. And before you know it, an hour will pass and you still want to read the word of God. The small things display God's greatness and he desires to make you great. He desires to take you and in the power of who he is, make you to be a person of significance. You must be willing to pay the price of obedience. Take that first step of conformity to be like him. Never underestimate the power of not much if it is in the hands of God. God often uses the small things to accomplish the big things. You see, when we talk about the price of greatness, the price of greatness begins with something as small as simply obeying His Word. Verses 11 to 14 explains the vision. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? After the two prophecies about Zerubbabel, Zechariah is given the answer to his vision. Zechariah asks, What are these two olive branches that supply the endless supply of oil? I understand now. God will be the one who supplies the oil. But what do these two olive branches represent? Verse 13 and 14. Then he answered me and said, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Zechariah is told that the two branches represent two anointed people who stand before the presence of God. Who are these two? These two are first Joshua, the high priest, as we talked about last week in chapter 3. And the second is Zerubbabel, the governor. In these two branches, you have the representative of the priestly office and the representative of the royal office. In its place stands Zerubbabel and Joshua. Representing the offices of royalty and the priest. These two branches typifies the Messiah. Who in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, combines the royal and the priestly office and function. He is the branch with the capital B. The oil that sustains the lamp. The oil that makes Israel great is none other than the power of Christ. The dunamis of Christ. Israel will once again be great because the Messiah, the branch, the one who holds the priestly and royal office will come and supply all that Israel needs. As it is for Israel, so it is for us. The power of living a great life comes from the power of Christ filling our life continually every day. 
the price of greatness is really simple. It's simply following Christ. The price of greatness is the price of following Christ. We call it discipleship. When we follow Christ, he enables us to do great things in his dunamis, in his power. But to get to the point where we will be willing to pay the price of following Jesus, our attitudes and actions must change. And therefore, the prerequisites, we must pay the price of humility. We must be willing to pay the price of surrender. We must pay the price of conformity so that we can start the process of following Christ to become great. My question to you this morning, my friends, is are you willing to pay the price? God invites us to return to Him. He invites us to make us great, to, to, to be people of significance, to be people of purpose, whatever the obstacles. He says, return to me, come to me. I want to put the capstone on your life. I want you to reach the pinnacle of your life where people around you and you will yell out, grace, grace, by the grace of God, I've achieved what I've achieved. But before you can do that, are you willing to take the first step of following me? Are you willing to pay the price of greatness? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It's a good reminder to me that true greatness does not come from my own ability, does not come from my talents, does not come from eloquence, doesn't even come from the people that I know or my position. The greatness of our life comes when the power of Jesus Christ is evident in it. So I pray this morning that each attitude is one of humility. Each person figuratively throws up their hands, steps away, and let God take control of their life. And by doing so, we take the first step towards obedience. May it be that each person in this church sitting this morning would become great, not in the eyes of the world, but become great in your sight. And because you've died on the cross on our behalf, we will all be willing to pay that price that calls us to be great. Greatness in the eyes of God is something we want to live for. It is something that you invite us to. Help us to live it out in accordance with your will. In Jesus' name we pray.